anyone is crazy enough to want to kill a president of the United States, he can do it. All he must be prepared to do is give his life for the presidents. John F. Kennedy. Welcome to the Revisionist History Podcast, where we set the historical record straight, no matter who it might offend. I'm Paul, and today we'll be wrapping up our short series on the JFK assassination conspiracy theories, finishing up with a little bit closer look at Lee Harvey Oswald and why he was, in fact, the lone assassin, and closing with a few ironies that many people may not realize. In previous episodes, we debunked some of the many theories about the assassination, like that the Cubans were behind it, or the mafia was behind it, or the military-industrial complex in cahoots with the CIA was behind it. So there's no need to go back over that now. You can go back and listen to those episodes. In our last episode, we took a closer look at Oliver Stone's film, JFK and how while exciting and dramatic it was historically one of the worst films ever made as far as inaccuracies as each one of these potential theories potential assassins are debunked the evidence as it always did points more and more to one man having killed President Kennedy and that's Lee Harvey Oswald it also points to the fact that he acted alone, not as part of some vast conspiracy. The evidence always pointed to Oswald, but in some cases it was collected in a shoddy manner, and people just didn't want to believe it. As I said at the beginning of the very first episode, people did not believe that one lone loser could kill the most powerful man in the world. But as we saw in the quote from President Kennedy, At the opening of this episode, he certainly believed it. He was also a man who had a better grasp of history than most. And while it had been over 60 years since the last presidential assassination, he knew it was something that was still possible. So what do we know about Lee Harvey Oswald outside of all the various conspiracy theories that are put forward? What do we know as fact? Well, I'm going to give you just a thumbnail sketch of who Lee Harvey Oswald was. His father died a few months before he was born and he was raised by an overbearing single mother, moving almost constantly and never having a stable home life. In fact, he and his two brothers were often placed in orphanages as his mother was trying to find work. He hated school, was often truant and dropped out at 17 and he never really interacted with any of his his classmates. He was a loner from the very earliest days of his life. One of the more outlandish conspiracy theories is that he joined the Marines so that he could learn about the U-2 project, the spy plane project that was being conducted over Russia, so that he could then defect and give that information to the Russians. 
The fact is, he joined the military to get away from his mother, just as both of his brothers had done before him. From an early age, he'd had a very keen interest in communism and Marxism, and in 1959, he defected to the Soviet Union. For those who say that that was part of government plot in order to be able to later blame the communists for the assassination of the president, explain to me how in 1959, before John F. Kennedy had even announced he was running for president of the United States, they were already planning a cover story for his assassination. Ridiculous. Now, Oswald always had an overinflated opinion of himself and his place in the world and his place in history. While he was in Russia, he kept a diary that he called a historic diary. That's what he called it. But he was soon disillusioned with the Soviet Union and he came back to the United States. He and his Russian wife settled in Dallas and he continued his political activities in support of Fidel Castro. He was, however, both unable to find steady work and unable to go back to the Soviet Union as he had hoped. In April of 1963, he attempted to assassinate right-wing retired General Edwin Walker in Dallas. The attempt failed, but Oswald escaped, though he had pretty much believed he would be caught and had left Marina a long note detailing what she should do if he was arrested, if he was taken alive, quote unquote. This attempt was not discovered or was not linked to Oswald until after the Kennedy assassination when the ballistics from the Walker investigation were matched up to the bullets in the Kennedy assassination. And it appears that this attempt, this failed attempt, emboldened him to go even higher with his aspirations, especially since he had not been caught. That was a little bit down the road though, because first he attempted once again to get back into the Soviet Union, this time through Cuba, and was denied, both by the Cubans and the Russians. In fact, the Russians' description of him was that he was a nut. The attempt on General Walker certainly exhibited his capacity for extreme violence, as did the fact that from early on in their marriage, he physically abused Marina. That's why on the day of the assassination, they were not living together. He was living at 500 North Beckley in a rooming house, and she was living with a woman named Ruth Payne in Irving. He saw Marina on the night before the assassination, and he left her almost all of his money and his wedding ring, which he had never before taken off. She didn't discover this until the next morning. He likely did this because, as in the case of his attempt on General Walker, he likely did not expect to survive the attempt, or at the very least, expected to be arrested. This is why I believe that his movement seemed so erratic following the assassination. He walked right out the front door of the school book depository, likely not having ever expected to make it that far. He boarded a bus that then bogged down in traffic, got out of that bus, 
and took a cab back to his rooming house, picked up his revolver, and started walking. Apparently, aimlessly. Maybe with the hopes of getting to another bus stop that would take him to Mexico. That is one theory that is very possible because in his inflated opinion of himself, in his crazed mind, he might have believed that had he gone to the Cuban embassy in Mexico City, having killed President Kennedy, they would have let him in as a hero. He was vastly mistaken, but that may have been his thinking. At any rate, he was encountered by Officer J.D. Tippett, who he murdered on the spot, and then he was captured at the Texas Theater. It's often glossed over by conspiracy theorists But his murder of Officer Tippett is, I believe, one of the strongest pieces of evidence that he was the assassin of President Kennedy. Because otherwise, since he had no other criminal record and was not wanted by the police for anything else, why would he have immediately shot Officer Tippett upon being confronted by him? All of the evidence points squarely and exclusively to Lee Harvey Oswald. The rifle that was used to kill the president was owned by him. The pistol that was used to kill Officer Tippett was owned by him. The photograph of him holding the rifle and the pistol was taken by Marina in his backyard with his own camera. He worked at the school book depository and was on the sixth floor that day. He had been trained to shoot a rifle in the Marines. And for those who love to say that he was a substandard Marine or that he wasn't a great shot because he only qualified as a marksman rather than an expert, understand this. Marines are better shots, even for someone who's only classified as a sharpshooter, than 99% of the people on the planet. Could Oswald have made those shots from the depository? Absolutely, without question. Three shots were fired from the sniper's nest in the school book depository. And recent acoustic investigation of the echo chamber that is Dealey Plaza has proven that there were only three shots fired that day, which completely takes out the idea of multiple shooters. To point to anyone other than Oswald requires a leap of faith that would make a Jesuit priest proud. There was no conspiracy, but there were some random events, coincidences, what have you, that truly did impact the assassination of John F. Kennedy that many people just aren't aware of. I mentioned earlier that Oswald had gone to the Cuban embassy in Mexico City in September, trying to seek a transit visa that would have allowed him to stay in Cuba for a while and then go on to the Soviet Union. Had the Cubans granted that visa, he would not even have been in Dallas in November of 1963. He'd have been either in Cuba or the Soviet Union. Had Oswald not been a cowardly bully who beat his wife, Marina would not have moved in with Michael and Ruth Payne to escape him. And ironically, or better put, tragically, it was Ruth Payne 
who in an attempt to help them with their financial problems that often led to Lee's angry outbursts, found him a job at the Texas School Book Depository. Most people today are aware that President Kennedy suffered from a variety of health ailments throughout his life and during his presidency. One of them was extreme back pain. He had suffered a back injury going all the way back to his days at Harvard and had undergone surgery five different times. He wore a back brace to relieve the pain that stretched from his chest to below his waist. And he wore it throughout his presidency. He was wearing it on the day of the assassination as he sat in the limousine that traveled through Dallas. Several doctors, including one who treated him in the emergency room at Parkland Hospital, believed that had he not been wearing the brace, he might have lived. You can see in the Zapruder film the shot which hits both Kennedy and Governor Connolly, that Connolly immediately reacts and immediately slumps in his seat while President Kennedy is essentially held upright in an almost stationary position by the back brace. This allows the final shot, which kills him. Had he not been wearing the brace, he would have slumped just like Governor Connolly did, and even if he had not fallen completely out of view, it would have made the final shot almost impossible. Lastly, and this seems so minor that it's almost never talked about. But it was raining in Fort Worth the morning of November 22, 1963. But by the time Air Force One landed at Love Field in Dallas, the rain had stopped. Had it continued, the presidential limousine would have not been open, but would have been covered with a clear bubble top. Now this top was not, as some believe, bulletproof but it would have made Oswald's shots much more difficult, if not impossible, if he even chose to take them at all. History is always full of little tidbits like that, that in my opinion are far more interesting than all the conspiracies in the world that people can dream up. It's understandable that we crave stability, we crave some certainty in life, and that the idea that one lone, crazed assassin could bring down the most powerful man in the world rightly horrifies us and makes us worry about our own mortality at the same time. But history is always hinged on events like this. It was one man firing shots into an open car that started the horror it was World War One. The impact of the Kennedy assassination was not as immediate or bloody as that event, but it changed America in ways that we'll probably never fully grasp. Be that as it may, it does a complete disservice to both his memory and to history to try and change the events to fit what we think they should have been. That's the problem with revisionist history every single time. I hope you've enjoyed this short series. And if you want to know more about the assassination, there's only a couple thousand books written about it that you can look up. 
Anyway, I hope you have a great weekend. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you're finding this podcast both informative and entertaining. If you'd like to help us keep episodes like this coming, please consider clicking on the support this podcast link in the show notes. It'll help us create more content and go a long way toward making this podcast completely ad-free. Thanks again.